0: Fourteen. There's. I hope that you will uh, keep your Bible open, and as we're going to keep referring to these verses, and try to begin with explaining what it's all about, and then uh, make some uh, interpretation, some application at the very, at the very end. There. Father, bless our time in Your Word. Bless our eyes that we may see, and our ears that we may hear. Give us the milk of the word give us the meat of it we recognize that we cannot live by bread only but by every word that proceeds from your mouth we ask that you would speak to us for we your servants hear. we pray this in jesus name amen outside of weekly church gatherings the two most popular reasons i think that people gather at a church are for weddings And for funerals, and both, as you no doubt have been to and and experienced, have both have a very distinct feeling to them. You can walk in to a funeral and know what's going on. You can walk into a wedding and get a very uh, separate feeling, uh, recognizing what's going on. Maybe the most distinguishing characteristic of a wedding is that atmosphere of joy. You know, weddings are supposed to be, not always, but are supposed to be happy, cheerful occasions. Any tears that you would see at a wedding are tears of joy that are hopefully going to be dried and uh, replaced with smiles and laughs. There is laughter and celebration. There is hope. There's anticipation for the future of the, uh, of the couple there. And in that respect, weddings of the first century Especially first century Israel were, were no different than they are today. They were celebrated events. they were uh, very very uh, popular uh, events they were they were things that people uh, enjoyed attending and being a part of they were uh, they actually in fact, in those days they lasted for seven days. The celebration uh, went for an entire week that 's a lot of wedding cake to uh, prepare for, but I am down with it if, if anybody wants to try that whoever 's got the next wedding coming up. When Jesus was approached by his uh, by John's disciples here John uh, John the Baptist uh, he used the image of a wedding as as Jim Redforce there, to teach them some very important truths about his ministry you now just a little bit of a background John the Baptist was Jesus's forerunner uh, he was the the uh, the front man for Jesus who had come on the scene prior to Jesus's arrival and he pointed people to the one who would come after him. Uh, he was the one who baptized Jesus in the, in the river. He was the one who, uh, pointed people and said the, the very prophetic statement there, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, but during John's ministries, we read through these various little parts of the Gospels. We find that John himself attracted a, a certain number of his own followers or his as, as, as Matthew writes here, his own disciples. And these were men who were committed to learning from him and following his ministry. In fact, some of Jesus' disciples were former disciples of John, who when John said to them, to pointed to Jesus and said, that's the Lamb of God, they left and followed. They followed Jesus. Uh, but these men here that come to Jesus uh, at this time are uh, disciples of John the Baptist. Now, some would say that John, uh, is already in prison. Remember when Herod uh, was, was, uh, was angry with him for preaching the truth and exposing his sin? Herod imprisoned him, which eventually led to his, uh, his execution. And so uh, some scholars believe that at this time in our story, John is already in prison, and uh, his, but his disciples are perpetuating his teaching and continuing his ministry. And these are the men who come and ask Jesus a question. Now, if you're reading it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you're going to see very slight detail, uh, differing details about who exactly is talking to Jesus here. But in the way that each evangelist ties the story to the previous verses, it's really easy to imagine that Jesus is still sitting around the table in Matthew's home. Remember last week when Jesus? we, we, we covered the, the section where Jesus came to Matthew's house and He was sitting around the table uh eating and fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees had a big problem with that. And and it seems here that John the Baptist's disciples were either a part of that uh, first story or they came afterwards and we see that they have a problem now with uh with another thing that Jesus is doing. Now look in verse number 14. I'm gonna read it here a little bit. Uh, as we go through each part of these, um, each, each parts of these things. If you notice, if your Bible is is uh, divided in, into little paragraphs and they have little subtitles, uh, mine here says it's a question about fasting. And I want you to recognize that it's not really about fasting. It's actually about something a little bit deeper than that. So verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Why do we fast, but not you guys? We, meaning John's disciples and the Pharisees, they fast, but you do not fast. This is actually the second complaint uh, or question in this narrative that's directed towards Jesus. The first one was back up in verse number 11. And there they said, you know, why does Jesus eat with sinners? Now they complain that Jesus is eating at all first time it was, hey, why is he eating with those people? And now they've got a problem that he's actually eating instead of fasting. In Luke, it tells us that they were fasting, which is probably that in this time and during these days, they were fasting and they were kind of shocked and maybe a little bit offended that Jesus was not fasting himself. And they want to know why does Jesus not direct his disciples to fast like they do? That's important for us to understand that fasting was an integral part of the Jewish religious system. It was, it was, it was very important. Uh, and, and we've seen a little bit of that when we were back in Matthew uh, Matthew 6 when Jesus taught a little bit about fasting. But if you were to go back all the way to Leviticus 16, you would see where God talks about uh, them, them needing to fast. And, and you can just write that down and look at it a little later. But in Leviticus 16, God told Moses that He wanted His people to remember the Day of Atonement once per year and the phrase there is to afflict themselves he wanted them to remember or recognize the day of atonement by afflicting themselves well psalm 35 13 says i humbled or afflicted my soul with fasting and so uh, god's people understood that when they they were supposed to afflict themselves that meant that they were supposed to spend a period of fasting fasting you probably know i'm assuming you know is that there is uh, there's no a period of no eating or even uh, drinking certain things. Now over time, this tradition of fasting had increased from once a year to twice per week. So and and, and we see that a few times. we're not going to look at them in the, in, in the time that we have this morning, but there are a few times that we see it in the Gospels even where we find that good godly quote unquote godly uh, Jews, Would fast twice a week, and that was kind of the measure of some spiritual superiority. And fasting, what had been intended as a meaningful spiritual exercise, had now become a perverted ritual, done more to please man than to please God. The first time Jesus mentions fasting, he says, Don't fast like those guys do. They fast often. But they fast to be seen of men. Remember, we talked about that. The three pillars was fasting and giving and praying. And all three times Jesus said, he didn't say don't do it, he said don't do it like they do it, because how they do it is done with the wrong motives. And Jesus is is not against fasting, as, as you know, as we've seen in Matthew six. And and in fact, as a side note, if the disciples had taken to heart Jesus' teaching about fasting, remember what he said there do it in secret if they had fasted as jesus told them to no one would have known that they were fasting to begin with because fasting is not a public event it's not something you walk around and tell everybody oh i'm fasting today i'm not eating because it is something that is supposed to be done to get god's attention rather than to get man's attention or man's approval we could say a lot more about fasting this morning but we're going to move on because uh, there's, there's the, 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 the answer to Jesus's, uh, the question Jesus asked helps us to see the, the main point of this. So these disciples asked Jesus why he and his disciples were not fasting like they were. And, and as I said earlier, recognize here that though the question is about fasting, they're really asking something deeper. They're taking issue with more than the fact that Jesus and the disciples are enjoying a meal with or without the sinners present. They're eating, and they shouldn't be according to tradition, according to what everybody else is doing. They should be fasting like everyone else. But what they see here is not just the fact that Jesus and his disciples are eating or not fasting. They see that Jesus is teaching something radically different than what has normally been taught. He's going against the traditions. He's going against the customs of the day and they wanted to know why and so this is the reason for their question why don't you guys fast like we do specifically right now or maybe all at all really we don't find uh jesus fasting very often except maybe the the 40 day period when we when we when we uh, see him being tempted in the wilderness and he didn't uh, fast but other than that he is not marked by fasting he's actually marked a lot by eating there's a lot of stories about Jesus eating and drinking with, with people and fellowshipping and having a meal with people, and not a lot said about the fasting, but they're putting a big emphasis on the fact that he's not. So Jesus responds to their question, but as usual, he doesn't come out with a flat answer. He responds with a question of his own. And notice that it's a rhetorical question. And so the answer is an implied no. Look in verse number 15, just the first part of verse number 15. He says, "Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The wedding guests are the children of the bride chamber. This is this is a, is a very unique way to describe the the wedding guests. The children of the bride chamber or the sons of the bride chamber. It's, it's it's a very special, unique way to describe the people who are at the wedding. The wedding guests. It's not necessarily a term that we would use today, but uh, we all understand what the wedding attendants are—the people at the, the the present at the wedding hall." These are the people who celebrate with the happy couple. And Jesus is asking, can they mourn while the groom is with them? It, it, it's impossible. He's saying, how can, they, how can they mourn at the wedding? First, is inappropriate. You don't cry at a wedding. You don't Unless you're the father bringing the, bringing the, the daughter down maybe, and you only cry for a little bit. It's, it's a time of rejoicing. It's not a funeral. It's not a time of loss. What do they say to the parents? You haven't lost a, uh, a daughter. You've gained a son or, or, or the other way around. Because it's a time of, of, of happiness and a time of joy and rejoicing. So how can the wedding guests mourn about this? Now, notice there that he drew a connection very quickly between mourning and fasting. Because the disciple says, why don't you fast? And Jesus says, how can they mourn? There's no, he didn't, he didn't, they were talking about mourning in their question, but there's a connection there. Now, later on, Jesus says that they will fast, but he's, he's drawing a connection here between the two things. And at the wedding, it's time to celebrate and rejoice. It's a time for feasting, not fasting. And in Old Testament times, God had promised to come for Israel like a groom for his bride. I'd like you, uh, if you can, if you can somewhat quickly go to Hosea, 2, or if you want to just write it down and I'll read it to you uh, so that you can uh, see it. But I want there's two places in the Old Testament I'd like you to see. It's in it's in your notes, Hosea 2.16 and then Jeremiah 31. Hosea 2.16 says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer you call me my Baal. And I will, and then verse uh, uh skipping down to I think verse 20, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. What I want you to see here is that uh, for many, many years, Israel knew that God was going to come for them, and it was with this symbolism, with this, with this terminology, that he is coming as a groom for his bride. He is coming and he has betrothed them. He is, he is going to marry them. They are going to bring them back together. And God used this marriage language to describe himself as Israel's loving, faithful husband. If you know anything about the book of Hosea, then you recognize that Hosea was a man who was told to go and marry a prostitute and love her despite her unfaithfulness to him because he was going to play out a a a life example of what israel had done to god and yet god still loved israel god still loved his people even though they acted like a prostitute even uh, as a married woman and so uh, god uses this language to describe himself as the faithful loving husband and israel as the unfaithful wife now because of their sin they had been punished but God promised to redeem them and bring them back to Himself. And, and He would do this by way of a new covenant. I mentioned Jeremiah 31, and I'm going to read from there in just a moment here. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. But the first covenant that we recognize uh, was the covenant that came from Moses. And it's what we recognize as the Old Testament. The word testament is just another another way to say covenant. But it's the it's the Old Testament, it's the old law given Uh, through Moses to God's people. Well, the new covenant that was promised to come would be better than the old one. And so Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, So when Jesus was referring to the wedding guests not being able to mourn or fast while the bridegroom was with them, he was really saying, I'm the groom. I've come to redeem my bride. I am the groom promised in Hosea. I am the one bringing the new covenant that Jeremiah told you about. And as long as I'm here, there is cause for celebration and rejoicing, not mourning, or fasting. Now, John the Baptist himself understood this. His disciples, though, apparently did not, as at least some of them he did not. In John 3.29, John told uh, his disciples concerning Jesus, he said, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John the Baptist understood that Jesus was the groom who was promised long ago to come and establish a new covenant that would bring God's people back to him. And John said here, the friend rejoices when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And in that way, my joy is now complete. And so Jesus was telling them that for now, it's completely appropriate for his disciples to eat and be merry, to rejoice and celebrate because the groom was there with them. But one day he would be taken away; he would be taken away from them. Look back in, if you're back in Matthew nine. We're going to look back in verse number fifteen, but the second part of it, Matthew nine fifteen b, it says uh, the, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So likely here Jesus is referring to His crucifixion and His death when He, the bridegroom, would be taken away from them and they would kind of lose their reason to rejoice. And for three days they would mourn. Can you imagine being one of those disciples who followed Christ and devoted your life to Him and and, 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 and bought into everything He was saying and teaching and and what He was selling, you were buying, and you you were all behind Him and then all of a sudden he proved to be very different than what even his closest followers thought he would be. They watched him die. They watched him be buried. They saw the stone be rolled in front of the door and the Roman seal across, making sure that nothing could go in and certainly no one would come out. For three days, they felt betrayed. They must have felt disappointed, to say the least. But on Easter morning, their mourning turned to rejoicing. Their sorrow turned to laughter. And Jesus even told them that this would happen. In John sixteen seventeen, He said to them, A little while, and you will not see Me. And again, a little while, and you will see Me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The disciples' pain of losing their Master would be great, it would be greater than any, any pain or sorrow that they'd ever experienced before. But Jesus promised hope. Because He said in John 16, 20, He said, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He says in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So get the picture here. Jesus is saying, I'm the groom. And as long as I'm here, there's cause to celebrate. One day, though, I'll be taken away from them, and they won't have the reason to celebrate. They'll mourn. But he told his disciples this very same thing. You're going to celebrate while I'm here. You're going to mourn when I'm gone, but I'm coming back. And you will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So to answer the question, back in the, at Matthew's table here, why don't your disciples fast like we do? Because it's not time. It's not time for them to mourn and fast. It has an appropriate time, but right now is not that time because the bridegroom is with them. And so he does give two illustrations here, one about clothes and one about wine, to help drive home this point about the bridegroom is with them and it's not time to fast. Now remember, the bigger question this that being, that's, that's being you know, given under, underneath the question about fasting is really about Jesus radically different teaching. And so these two illustrations here illuminate us to the truth of verse 15. So verse, uh, verse 15 there or verse 16 uh, begins to illustrate it, and Jesus talks about a new unshrunk cloth, and he says that it can't be used to patch an old garment. If an unwashed cloth was sewn into an old garment that had already been washed several times and shrunk, then it would eventually tear away. Look in verse number sixteen. He says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, a worse tear is made. So in other words, repairing an old garment with a new patch would actually make the tear worse than before. The old garment has a problem. It's torn. It needs repair. But you don't repair it with a new patch because if you do so, you're going to make things worse. Secondly, he gives a illustration about new wine that it cannot be poured into old skins. Look in verse number 17. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. Now, these wine skins are animal skins that were used. Maybe a goat. That was. Uh, they would take the skin. They would. Uh, they would tan the the, the the skin. They would do everything that they needed to do to, to preserve it. And then they would seal it all off. And they would uh, use it to transport liquids like wine or water or oil. And Jesus is saying here something that they knew about. That if you were to use an old an old wine skin to put new wine in, you would wreck everything. Because over time, these wine skins would get dry and brittle and crack. And if you pour new wine in that is still fermenting and still releasing the gases, it will expand this wine skin that is not willing to budge. It's not willing to flex, and you're going to burst a hole. You're going to spill the wine out, and you've destroyed the skin. Now you've got an unusable skin, and you've got you've got no wine. And that's what he's that's what he's explaining here. But he's saying that new wine is poured into new skins because they will stretch with the expansion and with the fermentation. And in this way, both the new wine and the new skin are preserved. And in both of these illustrations, Jesus is saying that the old garment and the old wine skin are no longer useful. The old cloth cannot be connected to the new and the old skin cannot contain the new wine. It's time for something new. Now follow me closely. Jesus was introducing a new structure. Be careful in how you understand this because back in Matthew 5.17, Jesus was very clear that He had not come to destroy the law. He was not here to do away with the law. He was there to fulfill it. But we have to understand that by fulfilling the law, that would naturally bring an end to certain parts of it. They had run their course. Remember, I read Jeremiah 31, 31, which promised a new covenant. Well, the writer of Hebrews uh, cites that that whole covenant there, and in Hebrews 8, he reminded his readers of the promise that Jeremiah told about, and then he says in Hebrews 8, 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, was not intended to last forever. Parts of it, at least. And once it was fulfilled, it would pass off the scene. Let me just give you one example of that uh, to to, to make it a little bit clear. According to the Old Testament, the priests would offer daily and yearly sacrifices for the people's sins. At the beginning of Hebrews 10, the author there explained that the law was but a shadow of things that were to come. It was incapable of providing a once-for-all uh, cleansing from sin, and therefore it was necessary for these regular sacrifices to be made. So Hebrews um, Hebrews 10 verse 11 says this, Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices Time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, referring to Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. So you see that what by Jesus coming, it kind of made the old stuff not needed anymore. Because it's been done. You don't have to keep repairing it. It's done. It's fixed. It's, it's not even repaired. It's brand new. And so the old isn't needed anymore. But Jesus hadn't come to kind of crush it. He came to fulfill it. But by fulfilling it, that would bring an end to certain to, to parts of it. And Jesus was teaching something new because he was the bridegroom of Israel. He was the one who had come to establish this new and better covenant between God and his people. Jesus was not abolishing the law. He was fulfilling it. However, the old covenant was like an old garment. It simply couldn't be patched up by adding the new covenant to it. John Lang wrote, It is not so much the unsuitableness of adding the new to the old as the folly of bringing together what is not only new but fresh with what is not only old but antiquated. The old covenant was like a wineskin that could not contain the new wine that Jesus was bringing. It required a new and fresh wineskin that would preserve both the structure and his teaching. D.A. Carson wrote that Jesus came to bring revelation and to introduce a situation so new that the very structures of antecedent revealed religion would change. He goes on to say, these prevailing structures of Jewish religion are inadequate to contain the new revelation and the new situation he himself is introducing. So, no, Jesus was not going to destroy the law. Yes, the law had run its course. Jesus' arrival was the fulfillment and the realization of what the law promised. It had become obsolete. And a new system was necessary to accommodate what was happening because of Jesus. Now, the point of this passage and the message is, as Grant Osborne wrote, the unsuitability of the Old Covenant as a vessel for the new. The Old Covenant can't handle the new stuff. That means that Jesus had not come to add to Judaism. He had not come to fix what was wrong with Judaism. The Old Covenant was unable to accommodate the change that the Messiah was bringing. That's why Romans 8, three says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. What did Jesus come to do? Well, we've learned already that Matthew 9.13 says that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And here we learn that to accomplish that mission, to call sinners to repentance, He had to... Uh, the changes had to be made to the current religious structure. Specifically, in regard to his, this question about fasting, fasting was no longer necessary or appropriate because the reason for their fasting was no longer valid. We'll talk about that a little bit tonight about their about their, 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 the, the New Testament versus Old Testament fasting. But under the old covenant, fasting was a way to express a longing for the coming Messiah. That's why they fasted because they they wanted the Messiah to come. They wanted the deliverance that he would bring. And and, and it was a mourning because of the bondage of their sin, the bondage of their captors, and a waiting, a hope for a future deliverance. But when the bridegroom arrived, and the new covenant came, uh, he brought deliverance from sin. So Messiah had come, and it was now time to rejoice. It was no longer time to 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 wait and mourn, it was time to rejoice. The groom had come for his bride, and those who recognized him and were his friends had just cause to celebrate. Now the Pharisees and even some of John's disciples didn't get this because they failed to see who Jesus really is. They were still mourning and fasting and waiting for someone who had already arrived. And in this story, ironically, was talking to them. The party was already happening. They were missing it. The question for us today is, do we realize? Do we behave as if the bridegroom has already come? Has the Spirit of God opened our eyes to the authentic Jesus? If so, there's reason to rejoice. That's why Jesus told his disciples back in John 16, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. At his presence, there is joy. In his presence, there is fullness of joy, the psalmist says. In his absence, there is sorrow, there is mourning. And Jesus said, when I leave you, there will be mourning, but I'll come back again. And then you'll get joy and no one will take it from you. Friends, the Christian life should be marked by rejoicing. It should be markedly different from those who are not friends of the groom. If you're a Christian this morning, it is another way of saying you are a wedding guest. You are a friend of the groom and we should be marked by rejoicing. Even in our sorrow. We don't grieve like other people. We have hope. We have joy that cannot be taken away because Christ has come. He left, and he re- but He promised to return again. And He said He wouldn't leave us alone. When he, when, he, when he told the disciples in John 15, He says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's the the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's why our joy can continue even in His absence, because though He is absent, He's not really completely gone. He has left His Spirit with us. So Christian, does your life reflect the delight of knowing the good news? Can others see that you daily celebrate and rejoice that the bridegroom has come? Or are you like someone who weeps at the wedding? Is your life characterized by hopeless mourning in spite of the celebration going on around you? Are you fasting when you should be feasting? That's the joy of the gospel, that though we deal with sin and we deal with loss and we deal with hurt, we can still rejoice in the Lord as Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In that context, Paul is talking about some very horrible things that have happened to him and to those people, but in the middle of that, he says rejoice. Even now, we celebrate the Messiah's first arrival when He came as a baby, when He lived among us as a man, when He went to the cross and paid for sin. We celebrate that. We recognize that He died for sin. We recognize that He rose again from sin. We don't wait till Easter to recognize and remember that and rejoice in that. We rejoice in that every day. We are raised with Him. But we patiently wait for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Christian. What's your life look like? Is it one that is marked by rejoicing? Are you in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time? Or do you look like everybody else that has no hope? I'm not saying that every day you have a smile plastered to your face. It's fake. I'm talking about real joy, even in the midst of hurt, even in the midst of loss, suffering. Jesus wept, but his life was marked by joy. We don't recognize him as one who walked around mopey and sad and grumpy all the time. Get this. If you are in Christ, should change your face. <laughs> it really, should it? Should make make us look different, not weird different, but happy different. Why? Because we recognize the groom has come. Jesus told his disciples, "If you love me, you would rejoice because I'm going to my Father." The question we must ask ourselves is, "Am I living like I'm feasting?" Or am I living like I'm mourning and fasting? Because I have good news to either tell you for the first time or to remind you again. The groom has come, and there is great cause for celebration. One day, there will be a huge celebration, but we don't have to wait for that. We rejoice today. We celebrate today as we gather. Tomorrow morning, celebrate. Another day of being in the presence of the Guru.